0: Welcome to our latest podcast, which is the recording of a hedge school discussing sexual violence and the Irish Revolution. This was recorded in the National Photographic Archive on the 26th of November 2019, courtesy of the National Library of Ireland.
1: What I want to look at here is, you know, how valid is the assumption that because the War of Independence and the Civil War uh, are regarded as quote-unquote low-rape conflicts, uh, that there is little to address in the arena of sexual assault. Now, to to, uh, answer this question, I'm joined by Linda Connolly here on my right. Linda, of course, is the author of the article uh, in History Ireland. On my left, uh, Lindsay Erna Byrne, and then finally one of our regular Head School panelists, uh, Brian Hanley. So, Linda, why is there a presumption that sexual violence was not very prevalent during the Irish Revolution?
2: There are a number of ways of answering that question. I mean, the the, the most uh, basic answer is because historians haven't written about it, so that would be the first reason, or certainly. it didn't insert it as part of what we might call the received narrative of the revolution. By that, I'm talking broadly about the period covering the War of Independence right into the Civil War and its aftermath. And there's a few issues at work. So one is, I suppose, the the gendered assumptions about the revolution. That it was predominantly uh, a war that was conducted by men and between men and that, that women were somehow less impacted by the violence uh, of the revolution. What we've seen in recent years is a lot of work being done on the role as, of women as, as agents, if you like, as combatants, and that's very important. Women were very much part of the revolution, um, of the project, but we haven't really looked at, in a sense, how the revolution uh, impacted on women, uh, including women as civilians uh, in their, their households, etc. So, um, so if you like, there has been, if you like, both in the period uh, after uh, the state was established, what we might call a collective amnesia, I suppose is what the term I would use, where this issue was um, not really considered as a part of the narrative of the kind of violent foundations of the state, um, and secondly, it wasn't, uh, considered to be an issue or a problem. Ireland was, I suppose, an exception. Um, You know, gender-based violence wasn't really an aspect of the conflict. And, of course, we now know differently. Um, You know, we might say that all wars, in a sense, are uh, gendered, because if women are half the population, you know, they're they're, they're not going to be uh, not affected or unimpacted by conflict, but I suppose, it has taken a long time for scholars to actually begin to ask a question, well, what did happen to the women? Um, Was there violence uh, that was aimed at women in particular and how was that manifest?
1: Lindsay, i like bring you in there because just on a question of definitions, right, um, the difference between gender and or sexual violence, gender violence, sexual violence, if you just tease that one out for us, please.
3: I think broadly, when we're talking about gender violence, we're talking about violence that has a particular gendered nature to it. So, for example, if you were targeting a woman and you'd say that the attack on her was gendered, it usually involved something that was specific to the female body, so either cutting the hair or stripping or some form of humiliation or some form of attack on the femininity that is also a, a sort of a warning and a reminder to others. And that is usually kind of part of a, a insider violence more often than not. So this is usually a community kind of almost disciplining or policing itself. Whereas in terms of sexual violence, there is you know sort of an outward sexual dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Sexual assault or sexual rape or, or, or rape, and again, that might form part of the conflict, so it could be a weapon of war. But it can also be part of the overall increase of violence during war. So, particularly, for example, when war happens in intimate environments, so within the home, when you've got a particular type of warfare, those warfare lends, that lend themselves more to that type of sexual violence. And we know from other conflicts, and this wasn't the case in the Irish revolutionary period, we know from other conflicts that war also had a political rape in war has a political agenda. We know in terms of particular ethnic conflicts and so on. So there's that difference. Um, I think they serve sometimes different functions um, and they kind of uh, are played out in different ways. So, for example, gender violence tends to be more ritualistic um, and that's part of it, uh, that people identify that this is a warning and it's a warning level that you, because you're a woman or in this case, yeah, I'm a man as well. Just a little <laughs> bit about, about head shaving, right, because this seems to be a,
1: a universal tactic used use against women, certainly all over, over Europe. And I just... A little bit of story, that's, a, that's our fun cover here, right, which is taken from a still from The Wind That Shakes the Barley. And um, it took us a long, long time to get that cover right, if we, if we did get it right. First of all, you're not going to get an image of sexual violence or anything, you know, of that nature. Obviously, nobody's going to take a photograph of it. But initially, we, we tried using um, the still itself from the film. And we had a little focus group uh, with the women in the office, uh, and all the people in the office, actually, but particularly the women, and they all found it deeply, deeply shocking. In other words, we had to kind of tone it down, tone it down, tone it down, until we came up with this one, right? But it was interesting that even that, which, which you know, wouldn't, it would be seen more as gender violence rather than sexual violence, uh, had that effect. You know, so even, I mean, none of these women had experienced this directly, obviously. So it still hits, it, it, it just hits the target, it seems to me, you know. But listen, just follow up what you were saying, um, how did contemporaries understand these distinctives? you know, the things you just you just defined here very clearly. I mean, how were perceptions of that at the time?
3: Well, that's a really good question, because I think it's, it's, it's almost a supplementary answer to what Linda was, was 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 talking about as well, and that one of the reasons why this is a story that hasn't been written is because it's a really difficult story to write, and it's, it's a difficult story to talk about now, contemporary speaking, so if we find it difficult now to talk about sexual violence and gender violence, well, you can just imagine how difficult it was uh, during that period. Uh, Gender violence served a function to warn others, so it's a clear, uh, and that's, that's why it's almost, almost always insider violence, and by that I mean it's it's people policing their own women usually, so often this would be, the haircutting would be a way of isolating a woman who was accused of, for example, maybe comporting with soldiers, British soldiers, uh, during the War of Independence, and this was a form of sort of uh, placing her outside the confines physically of our society, it was humiliating, it was also Quite done, quite violent. So there were chunks taken out of the heads. Often involved, you know, uh, violence in itself. But it was humiliating. It was a way of stripping them of their female identity, and it meant if you didn't want your local community to know this had happened to you, then you had to stay indoors. So it's also a way of literally uh, making women sort of stay within the confines of, of the home. And in the cases where where this does happen and women do go outside, there are it's a documented cases of them being. Spat at, people crossing the other side of the street, it having the effect it's supposed to have. Mm. So it was a way of, of, of policing women sexually and of warning other women as well that this would befall you. And wh- what was the attitude to victims? Generally, in relation yeah, yeah. To, to sexual gender assault, so, well, I mean, the, the, the attitude to the victims of gender violence, would I mean, it's complex because it depends on each individual case, but in relation to gender violence, people were fearful. So they were very fearful of showing kind of uh, alliance with that Uh, when it's inside of violence. In relation to sexual violence, again, that is so complicated because you're talking about a period when women's sexuality and the notion of people having what we would now call bodily integrity is just, it's very, very faint, it's very there. People didn't talk in terms of consent as we now would. So a lot depended on your social status class comes into that usually, whether or not you're married, and how your narrative fits into another story. By that I mean, if you're going to report sexual violence during the 1910s, 19, during either the War of Independence or the Civil War, or any period during the 1920s, in fact, a lot depends on the way in which that assault took place, what your standing is in the local community, um, whether or not you're married. Um, whether or not you are, it's going to um, really detrimentally affect your position in, a, in a respectable society. Uh, women were suspect; they were often not believed. Um, one of the things that was demanded of them was evidence of struggle, um, and they were asked in, you know, questions that we would find really morally reprehensible now. But that tells us that this sense of their victimhood was very tenuous. Remember too that the solution for it for. In independent times in the 1920s, mm. was that some of these women who came forward and reported rape or sexual assault ended up in institutions themselves. So you, you took a huge risk. And if we know now that you take a huge risk, and now that very few cases make it to, to court and very few cases mm. can say that they actually achieve justice, then thinking about that in the 1920s, well, just think about it for a second. The mm. other thing is, class is really important, mm. and it's really importantly associated with respectability. And uh, the courts were, not, were only for a certain type of class, right? They were only for certain types of people. So, in even thinking about the concept of justice, what did that mean to a woman in the 1920s? Did it mean going to the courts and getting justice through the courts? I'm not sure it did for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And they took a huge risk in, in, in reporting.
1: And this raises the whole question of evidence, which I'll come back to yeah. later, right? Because if they don't report it, we don't know about yeah. it, you know. But I'll come back to that. Brian, can I just go on to you just to put this in a bit of context in terms of the overall scale of violence, right? Because, I mean, it may surprise some people here that, that we don't actually know even how many people killed, say, in either the War of Independence or the Civil War. Can we, can we have a, a, a
0: rough guess? We're, We're beginning to know, and again, the work of people like John Dorney, Euna Halpin, Dahi Curran, Horig O'Rourke, and so on, is important here because
4: you know, I've been looking at school
0: books, secondary school books from the 1980s, and some of them would say approximately 10,000 people died in the Civil War, which is just a made-up figure. I mean, up until recently, we didn't actually know, and we're beginning to get a picture. Um, the latest estimate of the War of Independence, it, it, we say 1917 to 21 is 2,100, essentially. Right. Maybe 500 people in the Easter Rising. Um, John Dorney has done the sums on the Civil War, maybe 1,800, I think. And these, these, these are not exact. And what you tend to find within those figures, and again, the point about violence, of course, is that the death rate is a good indicator of how extreme things get, but it doesn't explain violence because you can be wounded and your life is changed forever, you know, and and lots of people are injured in various ways. And then there's all kinds of other violence which doesn't turn up in statistics. But it's pretty
1: low compared to what's happened in the rest of Europe, right? Maybe we should bear this in mind throughout. Yeah, I mean, you
0: know, we we do this as historians; we do tend to point out that Finland is worse and so on, but if it happens to you, it's the worst thing that ever happens. Yeah. So that's the okay, thing. okay, okay. And nothing okay. like it had happened in Ireland for quite a while, you know, since, yeah. in terms of a death toll, since the famine, probably. The finnian Rising and all the rest have been far less violent, violent than this, but. In the Eastern Rising, which is a very different kind of conflict, you've got over 260 civilians killed in Dublin, and I counted, last Nevin's list today, and there's over 50 women and girls on that list. Now, I suspect that might be higher because the nature of the bombardment and so on densely populated areas. So these are almost all civilian women killed in crossfire. Some of them killed deliberately, a lot killed in in the shellfire. In the War of Independence, again, the best estimate so far, the exact figure is 92 women. Now it's probably not exactly 92, which would be about 10% of the total of 2,100. Now, again, a lot of those women are killed in crossfire. They're killed during ambushes and so on. Some are deliberately targeted by Crown forces. Some are deliberately by the IRA, and people might want to, to ask oh, about that. Ora Gorurk reckons three come in the Women are killed in the War of Independence, for example. Again, that has been something that people hadn't been aware where of. To. They thought no no women had been killed. In the, the Civil, Civil war, war, I think, again, John Darney reckons about 200 civilians killed. Civil war, war is much more focused, it's very brutal, but it tends to be the Free State Army and the IRA rather than mm-hmm. civilians suffering lots of weight, but less so than in the War of Independence. So 200 civilians, and I don't know what the breakdown in terms of, 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 of gender there is. But there's about three the themon women killed in the civil war maybe as well. So in numerical terms, a lot fewer women are killed than men. And both sides do seem I mean, when you look at cases where the IRA kill women in ambushes and there's a famous case in Limerick Winifred Barrington, who was an Anglo-Irish woman, and she was in a, uh, traveling with British soldiers they go to great lengths to point out that this was really confusing and that she was wearing riding breaches and stuff so it was very hard you know, they tend to make a big case that we really didn't want to do this mm. you know so and a lot of the time there is this you know uh, when women are killed it, it is seen as you know um, it was an accident there wasn't a, 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 a desire to do that. there are exceptions um, by both ground forces and, and, and by Republicans and so on which people may want to ask about but in crude numerical terms women are fatalities a lot less than men in, in those conflicts
1: the only comment in that, because I mean, it could be interpreted from what you're saying is that there is some sort of revisionist conspiracy to downplay the the the, well, the, 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 the women as victims. Where the point is, objectively, there doesn't seem to be that many of them.
2: And I suppose, but you might say, on the other hand, is it sounds a bit um, daft. But when you're dead, you're dead. Um, whereas actually, you know, um, not to be facetious about it. Yeah. Um, but you know, I suppose that. You know when we were talking about we shift the analysis into trauma then we're talking about uh, things like injury or the impact of conflict on people who actually live and I think that's where you clearly there were far less women killed and it goes back to the question you asked me earlier why was there less emphasis well uh, on the violence women experienced is because they were killed in s numbers and a lot of the discussion has been about um, who died um, and I think it's very interesting as the decade of centenaries progresses we're asking an awful lot more about those who lived um, the impact on uh, women who experienced violence but also things like intergenerational trauma and the hurt that exists and, um, you know, the, the memory in communities. So, uh, you know, for me, it's very important, I think, to, to, when looking at the violence women experienced, well, then, you know, as I said, some may be dead, but what happened to those who were impacted by violence? And what we see is, you know, as, as Lindsay said, you know, there's different kinds of violence um, perpetrated against women, which is gendered. So, you know, the, the example of uh, what we call forced haircutting uh, in the War of Independence. But then we might, you know, I suppose, talk about a continuum of, of violence, of gender based violence, where you also have things like what we call today uh, sexual harassment. So, where women are literally in their day to day duties, and you see this in the Bureau of Military History, they're going about their daily business or whatever. And they're searched, but they're not just searched. They they can be um, sexually assaulted, and you know we see kind of references, I suppose, to that kind of behaviour—the searching of women, the harassment of women. Um, you've that's you've the a very product. Good example in, in the article, right? As yes, you know, exactly. Uh, yeah, of going
1: a, there. Of um,
2: yeah.
1: some young one who was you know, had a girl for men in uniform. So yeah. he was put, yeah, uh, and then the local unit. IRA guy stopped her and they gave her a very intimate search. I mean, it, it's it's you, know, you, you, you can read just yourself from the in the article.
2: What it says is that you you know you might you know you might think searching well that was just searching, but it described how her inner garments yeah, yeah, were explored. It than, so it's you know, very clear this is a sexual yeah, assault, yeah, but that yeah. may not be how it was framed um, yeah. at the time. So that idea that the violence you know it's it's and again likewise with hair cutting, you see references again to members of Cumann may have been killed in uh, small numbers, but but... they often had their hair cut, but uh, combined with that, physically beaten up. And there are various examples, again, with the Bureau and the pension applications. We have a lot more evidence, Um, uh, Peg Broderick uh, Nicholson in Galway is one example, um, where she was literally told she was going to be killed, so the kind of terror involved. Um, Molly Allaway in all member of Common na um, frequently raided, haircut, but also beaten up in the process. So, so I, you know, we're we're looking at different forms of violence that intersect and interact in very different ways. And then at the other, I suppose, end of the scale, we're talking about um, actual uh, rape and not just rape, but gang rape as well, which is a feature um, of the civil war. So we have to be able, I suppose look at violence as not being simple, simplistic, it's not something you can box in, and, and also understand it, I think, in terms of these different kinds of transgressions. The other aspect is, you mentioned the domestic context as well, um, Lindsay, is they, the witnessing violence as well and what we called the psychological impact um, of seeing somebody being killed or treated very badly, being shouted at, being harassed, whether that's through night raids um, it's always at night, it's always women you know, being dragged from their beds, etc. So, so there's, I suppose there's a climate of violence, there's a culture of violence, um, which exists in conflict. Women are killed, yes, in less numbers, but um, I suppose that doesn't mean we should negate or not look at the impact of violence on women at the same time. I
3: think it's also, if I can just on that, mm-hmm. I think it's also important to remember what the contemporary resonance of these things were, yeah. so even in not killing women, there was, a, there was a performance element to that, right? Yeah. Because we don't kill women because we're, we're dignified and respectable. British kill women, we don't kill women. So there was sort of a narrative that even that, in a sense, was claiming a kind of moral high ground. So that's one issue, but also the sort of violence that women encountered in a society where women's purchase on respectability is their moral purity, The fact that they're above question in relation to their sexual character means that a simple incident in a sense where they're being targeted and isolated out of the community and either searched or intimidated or there's a question mark placed over them and their sexual identity had huge ramifications because there was a kind of sense of no smoke without fire, why were you targeted? Mm -hmm. And that had a kind of a a huge issue and uh, she doesn't want me to mention her but Susan Byrne is is in the audience and she's done some really interesting. Work on the Ken, on the Ken Marisol, mm-hmm. and that is one of those cases where it's two sisters. in uh, 1923, June 1923, and their house is raided by uh, members of the national army, and um, they are dragged out of their bedrooms. I think they're 18 and 21. Susan can correct me if I'm getting any of the details wrong. But the way in which she's explored it is how this was, in a sense, a performance of the limits of female citizenship, and by that I mean. They drag these girls downstairs, they very violently beat them using the revolver and the belt of the revolver. Um, They have oil or some form of car oil or grease poured over their heads, and before the the, the soldiers leave one of the the, uh, sisters is is asked, or maybe both, but it's shouted at them, will you be free stagers now? So, in a sense, what, what, what is interesting about Susan's analysis and what we can draw from that is here's an example where you're actually scripting what this is. This is, are you going to behave and belong to this new state? And If you want to behave and belong in this new state, you don't, first of all, cavort with the enemy, and secondly, you don't bring shame, you don't humiliate the country. And What Susan has tracked is the way in which the story about these two women and what happens to them is dealt with by the National Army and it's absolutely fascinating because she starts with showing that initially the impulse is to seek justice for these women and to discipline the national soldiers and then it becomes a story of well that's going to become quite complicated and that's going to be bad for morale but if we reconsider these two women not so much as victims, but as people that are being punished for something that they did, and they did do something. They were seeing British soldiers. They were bringing disrepute upon Irish womanhood. Uh, then it's not actually a crime, but a punishment, and then we're moving into the terrain of it being a little bit more justifiable. Mm-hmm. And so you've suddenly, in the arc, and, and, and Susan does a wonderful job of tracking this, in the arc of that case, you see a narrative that I would argue, and I come at this not as a historian of the revolution, but as of gender, and I, that case to me is just this extraordinary opportunity for a historian to actually see the paper trail where a narrative we're all familiar with well into the 21st century gets bedded down, and that is if you can reframe what happens to women as something they might have brought on themselves, then the notion of justice becomes transformed and it becomes their fault. And I think that's a really powerful um, example of the ramifications of not, you know, of mm. Are we in the business of counting how many cases or are we going to try and understand the cases that we do know about and and try and explore what they're telling us both about the conflict but about the sort of state that was going to emerge out of that conflict
1: Brian, can i bring you in here because um and just following on from what lindsay has been saying right i mean it's well known that the informers you know were killed by the ira Mm -hmm. and in point is informers always get killed Conflicts like this, and it's it's. No, I, I want to choose my words carefully here. You know, you know, for, for for depending on your perspective, it's an accepted part of what happens in these situations. So, what was the uh, what was the IRA's position to, to, to female informers?
0: The formal rule was that women informers could not be shot. And mm-hmm. um, in fact, Irish women who informed were not even to be deported. In other words, they were the theory, the formal rule, which was in the the uh, the, the IRA's, uh, you know, rule book, was that essentially they were to be warned very strongly not to continue to give information. Um, and in three cases during the War of Independence, the IRA, as far as we know, killed women who they accused of being spies. is so Mrs. Lindsay. The, the most well, one of the most famous cases is Mrs. Lindsay in Cork who did give information to the authorities, which led to the capture and execution of several IRA volunteers at at Tripsy, um, in a period where the IRA in Cork was suffering setback after setback um, in the spring of 1921. GHQ in Dublin expressly told the IRA in Cork not to kill her. The IRA in Cork said if the men were executed, they would kill her in reprisal, and they did, and they buried her body, and it's never been found. So there they disobeyed instructions. IRA HQ knew that the British, you know, the the idea that you would kill an elderly woman, you know, (coughs) firstly, great propaganda for for the British. Hmm. Another woman in in West Cork was also killed as an informer, and a woman in Monaghan was killed Mm -hmm. in what is a pretty murky case because Mm -hmm. she had been informing on rival Pucci distillers. She was a Pucci distiller herself. She was a pretty marginal character. you know, that one will run and run in terms of people trying to get to the bottom of it. But, but in general, they did not kill women, even where there was a suspicion that women were giving information to the artists. The reality, of course, was that, you know, you had women who politically supported the British connection, unionist women, who obviously gave information, you know. Um, you had women who gave information because they disliked the IRA for various reasons, and you probably had women, again, how we'll know. You know, in terms of actual espionage but you probably did have women who were paid or who worked for the British in some way as well. In general the IRA did not kill them and in theory they were not supposed to kill them at all.
1: <coughs> Now I want to move on in the discussion but I just want to remind everybody I, I think I forgot to say this at the start that um, well it meant you, you, that you're at school you know when you have to do a bit of work uh, and involve yourself in the discussion. So I'd just like to say that if anyone would like to, to you know, ask a question or uh, involve themselves in the discussion, we have a radio mic here, uh, so just put your hand up and get my attention, and you can, you can join in the uh, discussion. I want to move on to some, you know, case studies here, right, um, and, you know, th- and, uh, just, uh, there's an advisory on this, people. Um, but because, I mean, it, we are looking at particular cases here. Linda, t- t- tell us about the case of um, uh, Maggie Doherty.
2: Maggie sure. Um, so, uh, as I said earlier, uh, you know one of the really important developments in this whole field is the availability of new sources that were not available before, and uh, the case of Maggie Doherty is a, a really interesting one. So. I'll give a bit of background to it. Maggie, Margaret Doherty, known as Maggie and her family, was from Foxford County Mayo. And her mother, Catherine, applied for a pension in the 1930s uh, on the basis of what happened to her daughter, Maggie. And what's very unique about this source is that Catherine describes in great detail the reasons why she's applying for the pension and it is related to a sexual assault.
1: No, just just to interject there, so the idea that we can't know about this issue because nobody gave evidence is not true in all cases.
2: No, I mean I think it would be incorrect incorrect to exaggerate and say there's a lot of evidence, but there is some evidence and I think as we progress through this period of questioning that a commemoration is supposed to bring about, uh, new questions are being asked and you know, personally, I don't accept that the sources are not there. We just have to look yeah, uh, yeah, really yeah. hard for them. So, 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 Maggie, cutting a very long story short, um, Catherine documents what happened to her daughter uh, in 1923. It, I now know it was uh, the attack happened on the 27th of May, 1923. And the, the application documents what happened, but also includes, interestingly, medical evidence. And again, not to cut a, a finer uh, point on it, but one of the ways in which we really do know there is sexual assault is if there is evidence you know, which shows injury to the woman, um, and particularly um, what we might call vaginal injury. And that's very hard to hear, but there is that kind of evidence in some of the files I have looked at. And it's very important, I suppose, to be able to Um, address these issues and also analyse them as well in a way that's respectful. Um, So on that night um, Maggie was dragged from her house and she was gang raped and um, it was uh, by three members of the the National Army um, as it was. So this file, the pension application released in May 2018 online is an example I suppose of how a family waived their anonymity and the anonymity of the woman involved to put on the public record what happened uh, to this woman. And again, that's quite unusual, but I suppose what it suggests to us is that there was attempts to, if you like, secure justice in these circumstances. Hmm. Um, The the doctor's reports were included. Um, What's very interesting is that The parish priest was uh, involved in reporting this issue um, to the local barracks, to the military. There was clearly an inquiry followed by a court-martial. And this is all held in archives that have been sitting in the courier or wherever for the last 96 years. It's a very powerful story uh, which is emblematic of that, I suppose, the hidden histories um, that exist and we're talking hidden histories of transgressive violence but I think when we talk about in particular the trauma of the civil war, you know, particularly in areas of the country where the civil war was very hot, for want of a be better um, phrase, gender-based violence stroke sexual violence is there and it's part of the narrative and we talk about atrocities like City and all the rest but alongside that you mentioned Camer, you know, we do see Of that around the country. So it raises very interesting questions, this particular case and some others, about how we, in a moment of commemoration, engage with the on the one hand um, ethical research, but also respectful remembrance that can, I suppose, include or accommodate these kinds of difficult questions about the past. Say in every talk if, is, if we can't address these questions in the past, particularly when we're commemorating, how can we address them in the presence in the present? Talking about sexual crime, remember, since 1861, crime of rape is there. So we're talking about something that's very clearly outlined in the law. Um, so it should be able to have a conversation about this. So what happened in
1: this case then? I mean, I think it's, you're saying there's medical evidence, right? Um,
2: yeah. For, I mean,
1: just, do we have any idea what the motive of these guys were? You know, I mean, you know, like, had something happened in this region? Uh, quite was it revenge or something? <laughs> you know, I yeah. just. I, I mean,
2: yeah. uh, it, it may
1: seem to be a stupid question, but...
2: Yeah, uh, it, it, you know, it's not a stupid question, and I suppose, you know, again, I've done quite a lot of research on this, and. Three members of her family um, fought in the First World War, so two for the British Army, one for the American. But then she had a group of other brothers who were very active um, on, on the anti-Treaty side in that area. And if you, I'm not an expert on um, the Civil War in Mayo, but I've read enough to see that you know it, 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 you're talking about, um, I suppose, protective. Uh, there was an element of reprisal. But she was an
1: Republican, though. She was, she was a member of
2: Common on herself, you know, yeah, she was.
1: a political uh, operator herself, in that um,
2: She was, yes, that is correct. Um, but I suppose there were, I suppose, a couple of events Leading up to that attack, you know, which might suggest this was part of the reprisal. Certainly, from what tar- I can see, a targeted
1: reprisal. You know, it, it was planned. Yeah, it was definitely
2: yeah. planned. Um, it wasn't, you know, uh, this kind of, you know, again, one of the perhaps misconceptions we have again is that, you know, soldiers are drunk or, oh, you know, they're kind of making it up as they go along. This actually attack. It's very clear it was planned. But I think what is really interesting is that. And again, this is another aspect, and I keep mentioning trauma. So what happened to Maggie, first of all, is that, as I said, her family put on the public record what happened. Um, the pension was delayed for five years. Um, eventually, it was awarded. Maggie died in 1998, and uh, very typically, and what you see across many of these cases, in a psychiatric um, institution in, in Castlebar, And again, we see this with other cases. And I think it really shows us, I suppose, in the, in the small number of cases, we do have what I would call evidence for evidence, yeah. you know, yeah. medical evidence, military evidence, you know, uh, social history, all of the things we're discussing, that kind of cross-disciplinary approach. We can see that um, you know, th- these transgressive acts are, both involve physical violence, because they're very violent, um, but also psychological, Violence, all, and, you know, have this kind of dimension with so mental health. So it is literally a, a
1: faith worth to death, you know. If I may use the expression, you know, because she yeah. she lived so, so many years, like you know, mm-hmm. and, and died this this way. Brian, can I just bring you in because there is a question here that, in terms of the discipline of the national army, right? Like, can we see this You're just moving away from the, the the sexual arena for a second, right? Is this example of an indisciplined rabble?
0: Yeah, well, I think uh, there's a big question about the, the modus operandi of the Free State Army, the National Army, during the Civil War in terms of how it um, um, seeks to put down the, the anti-treaty And there's a whole stream of cases, most of them, um, or most of them so, so far, far, and again, this is, you know, know. Linda and, and other people are uncovering, I had no idea about this case, um, until Linda wrote about it. There's a whole stream of cases where the, the Free State Army kill prisoners, torture prisoners. Um, notoriously, you have the, the various events in Kerry. They involve a man, Paddy O'Daly, who's also involved in the Ken Mayer case, you know that, that has been mentioned, mentioned earlier. Uh, Paddy O'Daly is a veteran of the Fianna in Dublin prior to 1916, fought in 1916. He personally shot dead the assistant commissioner of the RIC in 1920. This guy is, is, a, is an operator, and there is, I suppose, if, if you want to examine a case about the impact of conflict on elite units, because the worst things in the Civil War that were done by the National Army didn't tend to be done by the wave of young fellows who joined in 1922 who you might expect to be indisciplined, or by the, the legendary ex-British soldiers, of which there were thousands, who also you might expect to be the bad guys. The worst things tended to be done. Now I don't know what the case in, 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 in Mayo, about the three men there, but the worst tended to be done by the guys who were the core of the pro-treaty IRA, um, Collins Squad and so on. If New Jordan made a follow-up to Michael Collins and he took all the lads, the young, the young wise cracking lads from the room where, you know, they're joining the 12 Apostles and all that, and he followed that up with a real story of the Civil War, it'd be a horror film. Right.
1: Not right, for right. all of them,
0: but for an awful lot of them. So you've got an argument there about the impact. Most most men in the IRA didn't kill anybody. Most men in the Dublin IRA were lucky if they ever got a gun. But the squad did a lot. And by the time of the Civil War, these guys were pretty hardened. And they saw attacks on them. And sometimes, I mean, there's been a tendency from some Irish historians who overwhelmingly take the pro-treaty view yeah. that this was the saving of Irish democracy and the state had to come down hard, yeah. had to execute, you know, to, to, to teach a lesson and so on. But actually, the more that you look at it, there isn't a great strategic rationale for an enormous amount of things that the, that the Free State Army do. What there is, is revenge. In Ballyseedy, mm. a couple of Dublin lads, veterans, are killed that Paddy O'Daly is friends with. You know, in, in other cases, again, it's very personal. Shaw, uh, Noel Mass, for example, is killed after the Civil War is over, but he was suspected from June 1922 of being involved in an ambush in which three Free State officers were killed, and these guys are determined to get him. So a lot of the time this is pretty personal and not very strategic at all, and we can argue whether it actually has any great impact on, on how the war is won. But I think you've got uh, a guerrilla war in which the IRA killed more of them. The Free State Army suffers a lot more fatalities than the IRA, mm-hmm. and guerrillas have the opportunity to strike and escape. Yeah. Frick's army then is like, well, how do we get revenge for this? Well, right. we catch them and kill them. And generally, the government and the authorities cover that up, because what do you do to your army in wartime? Right. You don't put them on trial and make a show of let's well, speaking well, of which, in this case, they did, though.
2: Yeah. Um, they did yeah, and I was just going to add another layer, I suppose, to that. because I do think it is layer upon layer, and I completely agree with you, um, Brian. But there's another layer as well, which links the Margaret Doherty case and the Ken Mayer case, And the um, 1924 Army inquiry files are to be released at the end of the month. Um, now, I've looked at one of them, which is, um, they're in the Mulcahy papers, if anyone is interested. i right mm-hmm. write the article in a bigger piece, but there is the statement of Cahar Davitt is absolutely fascinating. Of course, the son of Michael Davitt, I think, um, from Mayo, obviously, uh, originally. And it's very interesting. When you look at what we call the state, I suppose it was the, the fledgling state, so to speak, the executive led by Cosgrave, etc. you can see um, the way in which these cases the Doherty case, it went right up to the top. They completely knew about this. And I always assumed, someone who has been researching this topic for years, that nobody must have known about this. Okay. But of course they did, um, Mulcahy, um, Cosgrave, and Davit was the one in both the Ken Mayer case and the Doherty case who looked at this and said, no, there's something wrong here. It doesn't add up. The behavior is shocking. And he pushed for the court martial yes. that occurred um, in, in, in um, Clare Morris, and uh, also was very uh, important in terms of uh, pushing for the Ken Mair case to be looked at properly. And that he failed because it was, I think, what Dominic Price uh, um, calls a procedural cover-up in the case of Ken Mair. But we didn't know about the Doherty case as well. So that begs the question, You know, again, without exaggerating, but are there other kinds of cases? And it's in the in the the digging down, drilling down, looking at these sources, both the state sources of the time, we can see um, that there were, you know, there was on the one hand an attempt to cover up, but on the other hand, if you look at certainly in the court martial that occurred um, in the Doherty case, you can see in the narrative, um, um, David's statement, etc. That the main concern was the reputation of the army everyone in foxford knew this had happened and um, it's in the statement in, in mulcahy says you know that um, it's very important to hold the court-martial because everybody's talking about this i'm paraphrasing everybody's talking about this and if we don't do this then we will look bad and they knew that the perpetrators had impunity and and would be would, would be let go.
1: But but why can we? <coughs> how, they were. How, why can we make that? Assumption? So the point is, they were they were they were found not guilty. Yes. Right. Now, do we have the records of the court martial?
2: Um, so so I um, had been asking for a, quite a long period for uh, to see the court martial, and the court martial is now going to be made available. Yeah. It will be. It's, it's, to the family first. Yeah.
1: I'm just trying to work out like.
2: It how, has been how, made how available. such
1: an open and shut case? Just, I need this. I have to ask this question.
2: Yeah.
1: Like, if there's this medical evidence, right? All this there evidence, was, right? Yeah. And these guys are exonerated. How can that be? Well. <laughs> which, <laughs> I, 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 there we go. Yeah. i just. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. But well, I mean, Ernest here's, a, here's said a case. About where the the Ken evidence women. Yep. You know, it's it's true detailed medical terms. evidence, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which, which you've well, seen, right? Yeah. Well,
0: what Linda's point there is, that Ernest Bloy, who's the government minister, talking about yeah. the Kenmare case. You can, you can say his attitude to the two women is, well, what what's the term he uses?
2: Troubles. A, a troop of tarts. Um, right. a, they had it coming hard. to them, you yeah, know, yeah. they were.
0: So, you, you know, know, you also have.
3: And, and that's put on the record. I mean, that is the public. It's statement, in his witness statement. So there's a consciousness of inscribing that narrative about mm-hmm. those women into a record that they know eventually will become public. I mean, there's a political
0: desire, obviously, to defend yeah. the army, but then there's also sexism, obviously. And there's, you know, yeah. and misogyny, which, you know, and we can talk about different historical characters. Mm-hmm. But Bly you know, describes the women in Kerry as a pair of tarts. They've got, so got, they, they got, got what was coming to them. So this also is a factor in how these cases are dealt with um, you know, across, across the board, I think. Did you, will, will I move on to a bit of them? Um, I the think so, case? yeah, yeah. yeah. I,
2: um, People um, may have questions, so I'm happy to take them, yeah.
0: Um,
1: no, there's another case then um, in Alton mm-hmm. a, right? Uh, this is Miss McGill. These this were Specials were, were the perpetrators. What happened there?
0: Yeah, again, this was... um, The the The, the postscript in this case, if that's the right word, is that Mm -hmm. people are are, are usually aware that that Frank Aitken and the IRA in South Armagh carried out an attack on the village of Adla Bay, which is a heavy, loyalist village where a lot of the the, the adult men were members of the ARB specials. And they killed, I think, five men and one woman. Again, they make the point that, you know, they, they didn't intend to kill the woman, but the woman was killed. This is remembered, right up to the present day by Unionists in Armagh, as, sec- as a sectarian, as a sectarian, sectarian massacre, uh, Frank Aiken is regarded as a butcher, his, 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 his persona in the south, which goes on to be about the UN and foreign affairs and all the rest, he is seen as, as, as this, you know, this, this, this murderous uh, sectarian killer. Um, but the, the background to that was there was a whole series of, of vicious um, uh, violence taking place in that region. But a Republican family called the McGills who owned a public house. The house, was, the public house, was raided by A specials. Uh, people were beaten up, no, savagely beaten. But it appears that the the, uh, the woman of the house, I think Mrs. McGill, and the domestic servant as well, hmm. were, were raped and and also brutally beaten. And that yeah. part of Aiken's response to this was that they were going to, to uh, you know kill as many specials as they could um, as a reprisal for a- this particular incident whether or not that's the, 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 uh, the correct way to reprise or whatever the word is retaliation. This is a factor, I think, in the IRA's behavior. Okay, not Nevaeh, or certainly Aiken's decision making. Now, um, again, people like Robert Lynch and so on have been writing about that case mm-hmm. and, and the ins and outs and details, which mm-hmm. know more about than me, probably. It
1: does <laughs> indicate that we, we should be grateful this conflict was relatively short.
0: I mean, that's just one observation,
1: because it seems that the violence was begetting violence and the nastiness was begetting nastiness, you know.
0: Well, as, as, it, was, as it went on, it got worse and worse. Did, yeah. you know, yeah. 1920, uh-huh. the first six months of 1921 were far worse than the previous year and a half. So the violence was getting worse yeah. all the time, yeah. you know, and in, the, uh, in the Ulster event and event then, event then in the... So yeah. sort of yeah. on. so, yes, yeah. things yeah. were getting worse. Lindsay, yeah. have, have we... Can we say more about the Khmer case?
3: Um... No, I suppose the one, one
0: case that I would be interested
3: in talking about would be Maryam. Um, oh, yeah, well, I just want to move on to that, yeah. but okay. the camera case, I think, no, I think I think it's been quite well covered, because I think that that, that, that fits one particular form of sexual yes. violence, um, and I suppose we can't speak about a universal form. There were lots of different types, hmm. and one of the things that, that we know in conflict, particularly when conflict comes to the home in the way that the Civil War does and War of Independence does is that violence in general is increased mm-hmm. and therefore also so is sexual violence. Yeah, so, we have evidence of that more, more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose from my point of view, I didn't come to this topic as a scholar at all of the revolutionary period. I was looking actually in a completely different source and it just alerted me to the fact that, you know, where are you going to find this source material, particularly if women experience sexual violence in a, in a place and in a way that doesn't fit with the So for example, in the, in the case of Larty, of there's a frame for that story to emerge through the, through the pension application. Exactly. Um, and again, with the Kemmer case, there's a place for that, in a sense, that paper trail to be created. If we accept that, as is the case today, the majority of victims of sexual abuse do not report that abuse, then in terms of the holy grail of paper for the historian, we have to accept that tangible, and I was looking at a completely different source which is a collection of letters written to the Archbishop of Dublin, uh, uh, Burn. Archbishop Byrne was the Archbishop between 1920 and 1940, and there's seven boxes of thousands of letters written to him from people all over Ireland during that 20 year period. For various different reasons, looking for assistance or um, looking for him to get involved in a dispute and so on. And it was in the course of looking (coughs) through those letters and I was looking really to understand poverty and how people talked about their poverty and whether or not they thought things were better after the Free State and that's what I was looking for. And at the end of a very long week, on a Friday, I came across this letter I was about to finish, and in what's why, why I continued the day was it was so beautifully written, The handwriting was so beautiful, and I had been dealing with a lot of letters that were quite difficult, so I thought i will end with this one because it was beautifully scripted. And at first, this is going to sound strange, but at first it, 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 it read like a love letter. It was sort of, it's eight pages, written beautifully joint handwriting, which was very similar to my grandmother's. And, and it, from the very beginning, the author is, sucks you into a story. And so I began to read it. It was the story of a woman who's writing to the Archbishop because she desperately needs his help, because she has had a baby outside marriage. And that baby is at this moment of her writing. And she's writing in 1924, in June 1924, is in a rescue home. And the woman who runs the rescue home who becomes a very well-known character to me, because she was very busy in Dublin, prying on the vulnerability of many of these women, was charging a lot of money for this baby to be kept in secret every month. And she was, the, the, the author of the letter was robbing her blind aunt's pension in order to fund this baby in Dublin. And she was writing from County Westmeath. And the woman had said, if you if you don't pay me 20 pounds to organize the private adoption of your baby, I'm going to arrive on your farmstead with the baby. So this woman is writing to the archbishop saying, I am desperate. And she says, she tells the story about how she got pregnant. And she got pregnant in June 1923 when what she calls a gang of men broke into her farmstead, armed to the teeth and calling themselves Republicans. And they trash the house looking for money and they go for her blind hand first. And she intervenes and actually, I'm gonna get, can I read the way she sure, describes yeah. it? Yeah. Because, because when I read it, I <clears throat> the archivist at the time who was there was David Sheehy, a wonderful man in the mm-hmm. Dublin Dawson archives. And I actually went, oh my God, oh my God. And David goes, what, what Oh my God! I think I've just read a woman hand the Archbishop. She was right today because what? And the two of us were because I had to read it twice. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean. She says, during the political trouble, when looting and robbing and raiding were carried on to such an extent in our country district, my trouble began in January 1923. A party of men, armed to the teeth and calling themselves Republicans, forced their entrance into our home, wherein three people resided. My aunt, who is totally blind and is over 70, my uncle 70, and I, their niece, an orphan. The object of their visit was money or lives. When I strove to save my aunt from being dragged from her bed, they were furious. And when they did not get money, one brute satisfied his duty passion on me. I was then in a dangerous state of health. Through his conduct, I became pregnant. Oh, God, could any pen describe what I have gone through. And that just spoke so many volumes to me, how it was described, um, and that it, I had never heard it, i just never heard it being described in that way. And then yeah. I'm thinking, this is a woman writing to her archbishop, because she goes on to talk about how important her religion was, and that since this had happened, she was unable to pray, she was unable to go to confession. She, was, she, she, she describes this trauma. She's completely, she can't yeah. sleep, she can't eat, she can't think. And it's a really articulate description of what we now would know as, 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 as a woman who's totally traumatized. And for me, while I, well, I had not looked at the I, I had stayed clear. I will admit this now. I had stayed clear of the revolution. Okay. And I, I thought, where does this fit with the revolutionary story? I, 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 this was completely new to me. And just, just to end on that is that she tells this eloquent story. And for me, what's equally informative about her story is the response to her story. So here she is a woman, 1924, single and married, the primary carer of her two um, aged rel- relatives. She is to all intents a purpose an unmarried mother, which makes her the lowest on the wrong in terms of being trusted, and yet she writes this letter to the Archbishop, the kind of one of the highest in, in the hierarchical structure of a church she believes in, and he does not question the validity of her story for a second.
1: Does he respond? He responds. He
3: responds and he gives her the money she wants. Twenty pounds, which is a huge sum of money. The average amount of money that he's giving out is a shilling. Um, and, and if you're really lucky, it's a pound, and I kind of track that. You get, you get the money that corresponds with your class. So, and this money does not correspond with her class. And she, her letter is accompanied by her confessor, saying, "I knew of, this is what's also very interesting. I knew of this attack. I knew that it would be physically yeah. violent, but I did not know until she was with child the deeper nature of it. And her blind aunt and uncle, because the attack happens outside the building, she is kept from them as well. So, in a sense, it's, on so many levels, it makes us wonder about, well, where are these narratives going to emerge? How are they going to emerge? In her case, the only reason we know about her is because she becomes pregnant and she is desperate both to save her child, but also to save her own social standing. And she's afraid that the, you know, this baby is going to be brought back to the, to the doorstep. And that's the only reason we pick up that case at all. And in, in my case, it was, totally, it was totally accidental. I wasn't looking for it. But I think it raises all sorts of questions. because. Trust me, the archbishop did due diligence. He would question every shilling he gave out. He would check that the guy who said the sewing machine was in the pawn really had the pawn ticket to prove it. So, and she was not in a forceful position in her society. This is, a, this is a society that's moving into a zone of incarcerating such women. So she was really vulnerable by asking for help. She could have ended up being taken away to an institution. And she was aware of what her options were and how limited they were and yet she, she felt she was telling a story that was going to be believed, and it was believed. So it just made me wonder about the way in which, how many more of these subterranean narratives were there that it didn't cause surprise among any of the people, not a notice surprise at all among any of the people who read it.
1: Now, i, I just go to you, Linda, for one more case, and, and just one more, because I mean, it, it is difficult to listen to all the stuff, I have to say. Um, but tell us about the, the case of Eileen uh, Biggs.
2: Sure. Um, so so. Just to say, um, Lindsay's paper has been very influential in my work, and it's a really brilliant example of, you know, microhistory and you know how you can build on a woman's story, you know, and and then link in with things like revolution. And likewise, the Eileen Biggs case has been written about by others. It's it's not a story I have discovered, so to speak. Um, but um, so, just to, I suppose they, 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 the people who really written about this um, first. Paudric Yates and um, Seamus Hogan, and then after that, Gemma Clark really were the three people who've looked at this. And Eileen, again, you know, I suppose what's interesting is these issues—they cross class. Um, it, there isn't one side perpetrating this. There isn't one group that isn't, you know, unaffected. So Eileen was a Protestant um, woman, and again. Um, So this attack on Eileen took place in um, the kind of Loch Derg uh, area and Eileen um, so this was anti-treaty but um, I suppose what's again in terms of sources really interesting so uh, the attack uh, took place in, in June 1922 and eileen um, subsequently applied uh, it was a compensation claim and again unusual very uh, detailed um description of what happened to her that night very similar to some of the attacks we're, we're talking about here i won't go into all of the details but but just to say that you know it was quite a violent attack and she was gang raped and she describes this in her um application for compensation. She was awarded, again, you know, interesting talking about amounts, I'm not an economic historian, yeah. far from it. Um, but again, you look at the amounts uh, uh, awarded, so this was in the region of 6,000 pounds, whatever that was at the time, apparently one of the highest amounts. That's, that's a big
5: figure.
2: Absolutely. So so again, again, interesting the way this was dealt with. So there was actually a, 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 a kind of a court case, I suppose there was a court case, it was investigated. But in this case, the woman was, um, too injured to testify, so they, it was considered that the witnesses were not um, strong enough. And again, that's very typical. You know, we talked about impunity earlier on. You know, the problem is, for instance, you know, with a very violent attack, if, if, you're, if you're not well enough to testify, well then the case falls apart. So that would have happened um, quite a bit in cases that. So just progressed. for reference,
1: these guys were put on trial.
2: Somewhere yeah. somewhere yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again
1: uh, exonerated
2: um not quite um more like i suppose they didn't follow
1: through with the prosecution no
2: no because okay. the the the, the, For the lack of ev- evidence exactly um or certainly because the one the was able
1: to get the evidence because you're so badly physically and, and psychologically traumatized and physically. one of
2: the witnesses who was in the house at the time couldn't really g- quite categorically tell you know the okay. identity uh, stuff like that surprise surprise so, so you don't go to the courts, in other words, for evidence of this kind. You won't get much out. Now, it was quite widely reported in the newspapers. The local newspapers are always a very good source. Not all these cases were reported. Certainly, the Maggie Doherty one wasn't. I've trolled the newspapers. But this one it's, was. This one was yeah, um, yeah. Do you mind if I read out sure, just a bit? Yeah.
1: It's um, at a special court in Nina before Mr. PJ Dempsey, four young men named Michael Grace, uh, Drummoneer, Patrick and Edward Hogan, Ditto. James Grace and Begg were charged with having entered the house of Mrs Biggs at Hazel Point Drummoneer and with others who were not in custody, assaulted Mrs Harriet Biggs, that's the same one. Mr James O'Brien's solicitor prosecuted on behalf of the Irish government and Mr L.P Gleason solicitor appeared for the accused. Mr O'Brien said that the case was the most serious that had come under the notice of the Irish government for the past 12 months and they were determined that it should be probed to the bottom they would do their best to punish the offenders with the utmost rigor of the law. Unfortunately, owing to the attack that had been made on the lady, she was not yet in a fit condition to attend and give evidence. Uh, Mr Gleason asked to have the prisoners admitted to bail, as they were already six weeks in custody, and it was a hardship on them and their families. The President said that it was a most serious case, the most serious that had happened in the country for many years, and it was up to every c- citizen to do his best to help the capture and punishment of the offenders. The application of the solicitor for the defence could not be refused. Mr. Thomas Webb, who was with Mrs. Biggs' house at the time of the alleged assault, said that he he was locked uh, into a room. He heard noise in Mrs. Biggs' room, and when she was liberated, she was in a frightful state, almost unconscious. She told them that she had been molested by the men case was adjourned, and the defendants were admitted to bail in a sum of £200 each. So the point is that is in the newspapers, that is in the public it, domain.
2: Exactly. It's, yeah. it, so in that sense, it, again, it gives another dimension that wouldn't have been, again, that common. Um, and likewise, the, the compensation claim has, you know, a lot of detail in it. Now, there as is well. a, an extra
1: twist to this one, uh, because it, it, there is mentioned that, that um, some were not in custody
2: I'm talking about. Uh... Uh, um, yes, yeah, so so when, one of the more I suppose controversial issues then um, that might arise then out of this is what happens, you know, if perpetrators are named and how that I, I suppose is dealt with, and um, and again I mentioned ethics earlier on. I think you know we have to be quite careful if they're out in the public as in the newspapers at the time they're named. So you're not waiving, I suppose, anybody's anonymity in that sense. So so uh, Martin Hogan. Was uh, reportedly um, the leader of the gang who actually went to Dublin, and and, and the two,
1: uh, two the people named are, are his brothers. Yes, so it, it's, yeah. it's 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 a very close connection. He's and the leader the, of uh, that unit, and his two yeah. brothers in that unit, you know, so yeah.
2: Exactly. So so I suppose and I, and I, and again I would be not into the, I suppose the politics of recrimination when we're talking about the past. We have to understand all aspects of it. So um, he was subsequently killed. Um, well, murdered. Actually, well, again, terminology is is um, important. Um, murdered, murdered by or the Oriel House murdered. gang. Again, yeah. I'm not a, a historian of the revolution, but I know uh, who they are. And um, again, you mentioned tortured, and so 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 again, you know, the violence, I suppose, is all encompassing um, in that sense. But then you he's know. commemorated. So yeah. So so what I've written about in the piece, I suppose, m- maybe maybe too bravely, is what happens then when we look at that, I suppose, relationship between heroic remembrance, which is the kind of more military way of thinking about the revolution that we we look, look around. There are some women here, but um, I'm trying to find. This isn't a good example. But you know, we have we we were all brought up with the heroic martyrs of 1916, etc., etc. And um, when you look at something that's docu- documented like a transgressive gang rape in this way, you see um, Martin Hogan is commemorated both on Grace Park Road, where he was killed. It's if, if you know that part of the city, there is a. a, a it's not a statue, it's a kind of a headstone more so, isn't it? And, Pictures um, in the, in the yeah, magazine. And also off Bandra Square and Nina. And so, so, again, so I think, again, remembrance, how we remember, what we choose to remember, you know, and when we're looking at these kinds of questions we're looking at tonight, it raises very provocative questions. And um, I, I would say we shouldn't be afraid of those questions hmm. because You know, somebody said to me, I spoke in Belfast in August, and they said, "God, what? You know, should we take a hammer to them or whatever?" And I said, "No." I said because what we should do is engage in a critical conversation with them and about them. And what we're trying to do, I suppose, is in in discussing commemoration and all the problems that goes with that. that, You know, the the heroic narrative, you know, the heroic militaristic narrative, has to be offset. Um, against the experience of female victims of the Civil War, um, and uh, this is a very good example of that. And if we are to use commemoration as a way of, I don't know, moving on or understanding and, and in a mature way what happened, um, you know, we, uh, but we also have to uh, give respect to, to, to female victims. So it raises very provocative questions about sexual crime, about uh, you know the way in which violence was perpetrated against women in this period, and how it was—if you like—it's a very good example of how it was written out, how it was literally left out of the narrative we've all, you know, learned about in school and you know read about. And how did civil war historians um, miss this, or you know, if you like, present such a one-sided uh, view? There's a whole piece of the analysis missing here. Um, also, interestingly, Eileen, just to say a little bit about Eileen, because. You know often that you know this incident was looked at, and you know what happened to Martin Hogan, but very little was known about Eileen. It was presumed she went to um, England and and stayed there, but in fact, she came back to Dublin the, the biggs family Eileen was a Robinson she was born in Dublin they were all military mm-hmm. um they were British Army um Eileen came back to Dublin with her husband, Samuel, and um, she also died in a psychiatric institution. She died in St. Pat's in 1950, which was a good while after. Um, so so I mean, there's only, there's only yeah. difference in the
1: fact that she wasn't buried in the same place as her husband. I,
2: mean, I, I just, just jumped off the page um, of and read that. Well, yes, I guess you know. Normally, you know usually,
4: it's, it's, it's a shame. I mean, all her female
2: know. relatives are buried in Mount Jerome, actually, and it took me a good while to find find mm. them. Um, and um, she's buried with her sister and another sister. It's 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 it sense. So so two sisters married two brothers, which was, wasn't actually that uncommon. And the mm. two of the Robinson sisters married two of the big brothers, so to speak. As I said, who had lived in different places around the kind of Loch Derg area, Nina area. Um, and both sisters are, are buried in Mount Jero. They're not in the Biggs vault, so to speak, um, in Tipperary. So so yes, I guess it, I mean, I think it's sad that Eileen is buried in a grave that's not, it's unmarked, there's no headstone. Um, and that, that sits alongside memorialization of the heroic aspect. So these are, you know, mm. forgotten, Histories are very sad stories, and they tell a lot. You know about what we're talking about here. That there's a hierarchy here. You know there is a hierarchy in, in in the way we've written this history, in the narrative, and in particular the way we have studied violence. And yes, you know, she wasn't killed, but she was nearly killed. She was almost killed. You know.
1: Now I'm looking at the time here, guys. So does anyone in the audience want to come in? Um, we have a radio mic here. Yeah. Well you take the the mic. Do you, you want to come in? Yeah. yeah. Just
6: stand around here in the front. Um very interesting to listen to the panel members and yourself. tell me as I understand, understand it, it. We're discussing the assumption as to why there was no sexual revival. I think I suppose crucial might train which I won't go into, in the seventies you have to make certain assumptions for and against when you were looking at these issues. And I think that if we all stopped in the early days of the 20th, first century, look at what was happening in the early decades of the 20th century, we're looking at it through a different prism altogether. So maybe even to change the question or the discussion to say, why don't we assume, and I think there are good grounds to assume, that in fact there was quite a lot Sexual violence, rape, etc., etc., not just during the Civil War, but a lot of the participants in that war were the product of the previous War of Independence. But, um, and I noted the contribution by a panelist that we kept, or they kept, informers silent and they were told you don't shoot them if they're women. Well, the alternative to that was. If there were informers or alleged informers, there were other means of keeping them silent, one of which was harassment, rape, sexual assault, which from my mid-70s looking at issues of this area of equality in the broader sense and speaking to some of the women of that era who were still alive, they said, quietly, I suppose, because it was still the 70s, but it was post-Vatican too, and it was well beyond the ladies kneeling down saying the rosaries and things like that, all all highly commendable, but of an age or of a time. And a lot, I won't say a lot, but the number of people in their 70s, at that stage, in the mid-70s, who were the product or the of that generation, and some of the stories that were coming out privately, because even in the seventies you didn't speak of these things, and it's difficult to even speak of them in the well, for the, my age anyway, in the early twenty-first century. But if we, I come back to my point, maybe if we all just stopped and assumed mm. that there was sexual violence and there was a use of that in order to keep women quiet. And a lot of them wound up in what became Magdalene homes in later generations, but they wound up in allegedly psychiatric homes as a consequence of what happened to them yeah. Yeah. during that period. So I think let's stop and rephrase the question and assume there was a higher degree than we're led to even think yeah. that sort of violence. someone come
1: in? I tell you, if you're.
5: Um, on the, the commemoration, the decade of Commemorations, or whatever. Uh, this is a particular period now where sources are coming out. Uh, they've been concentrated on developing the, the sources, like pensions and the, uh, the witness <coughs> statements, and, the reports and all of this sort of stuff. Um, it's been concentrated on this particular period at the moment because of the decade of Commemorations. To any extent, at this point now, you're having your one shot at this, and uh, you need to do a sort of a, a, a comprehensive look at the period now. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of even uh, uh, the Battle of Clontarf There was the same thing happened. There was a huge amount of research done in the up to the to the to the commemoration there, and it's sort of since because there was money around and so forth for financing stuff. So I'm wondering to what extent, in the run-up to this now, which is going to be a very, very difficult period, do you think you your one shot at it? Uh, it may be much more difficult to go into it at a later stage.
0: Well, I mean, I, I mean, this is the first time I've been involved in discussion of this particular at- um, and I think that, I mean, I think what, what's what been noticeable is that nothing is gonna match 2016. There's already a decline in interest among the public in the War of Independence, even though that will be all kinds of commemorations and discussions, but it's never gonna match the GPO, 1916 and all the rest of it. So, I mean, in terms of, is this gonna be the great chance? I don't, I don't think so, because I think what we're, beginning to see is, and we're, we're very lucky, I mean, the, the Irish state, the Southern Irish state gets criticised um, um, for a lot of stuff about commemoration, but the documentation that's available to do with the revolutionary period is, is unprecedented. I mean, one of the reasons why you're, you're able to clear, to an extent, some of these arguments up is because of things like the pension files. Now, The pension files are difficult reading anyway. Um, the Bureau of Military History statements were meant to be read. And you have to see them in that light because even if it was only going to be 60 years later the man or woman given that statement knew that someday somebody would read it the pension files weren't meant to be read when people are talking about like i'm i've i've lost everything when the guards are going in and counting the number of 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 ornaments they have that was completely private so i mean again there's you know they've decided that it's we, we can read it but so
6: there's more of
0: a sense there that you're seeing things that you wouldn't have had otherwise but the other thing i suppose i have to say is that these can be tested because the IRA kept vast amounts of records. So there's things said in Euro statements and in pension statements that can be contradicted by the Mulcahy papers, by contemporary IRA documents. And some of these individuals can be traced. So you'll find, you know, in a pension statement, I mean, I've been looking at outside Ireland, uh, a guy who's involved in smuggling from Liverpool, and it's like his pension or his pension statements, there's no shortage of people saying this was a brilliant fella. And in the Mulcahy papers, in a note to Michael Collins, they're saying he's a drunkard and he can't be trusted. So again, 30 years later, 20 years later, people have decided the guy deserves a pension right now. In more, there's more serious questions than that, but there is a huge amount of, of evidence. So whether, I suppose the danger is, and this isn't what Linda or Lindsay are doing, they're being very, very careful in the cases, that you take a particular case and you say the rape of Mrs. Biggs proves that the anti-treaty IRA were an organisation of rapists, and that this is what awaited us if they'd ever come to power. Or you take the cases involved in the Free State Army. I mean, I've already, you know, talked about the squad in a certain way, which again, it'd be difficult for people, difficult for, for their relatives, you know. In, in certain, so again, we, I have to stand up and say, you know, I, I, I think these things. But you know, the Free State Army, as far as we know, um, you know, Didn't commit thousands of rapes, but we don't know how many they did commit because, again, you know. But but the point is that we we're we're slowly uncovering these things, Mm. and it can do without the banner headline saying this proves that one set Mm. were the bastards, or you know, on the other hand, that without really going through the evidence that everybody was doing this all the time, which we don't know. Now there's we didn't talk about other types of violence, the gendered violence so much, which was very widespread particularly in the War of Independence, of hair cutting and so on, which is a, another question which, again, does come up all over the place and which does raise questions, again, about how a revolutionary army stops fraternisation with the enemy because all armies try to do that and that's not a unique Irish case as well. So I think we, we've got to examine those and, and be very you know, careful about how we talk about
1: them. I have to say, it, right, Brian, it raises a much more disturbing question, right? uh, especially if you're a man which is that men tend to do these things. And obviously, most men don't do them themselves. But they do, in some way or other, collude in in not facing them and covering them up. You know what I mean? This this is a far more disturbing question, right? That there's a whole uh, culture and attitude which allows these things to happen. And they still happen, which is another, uh, 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 you know,
0: There is another question about the military and armies as well, and and Tom Clonan was going to be on the panel tonight, unfortunately couldn't be, because he did a lot of investigation into the defence forces and so on, and that would have been very interesting, I'm not qualified to talk about it, but certainly from 1914 onwards, there was a consciousness across the globe about rape and war, because, yeah. Well, everybody would have been aware in 1914 when the Germans invade Belgium. The big rallying cry is, "Defend Belgium" and so on. And one uh, home rule MPs, for example, I mean, I think Patrick Mallam said, you know, some of their speeches are almost pornographic in nature because they are talking about the Germans carrying out rape after rape in Belgium and northern France, raping nuns, uh, nuns being stripped naked and chased down the street and so on. So from the beginning of the First World War, there was this consciousness about rape. And it was always propagandized. So the German army did commit rapes. But of course, the Allies accused them of rape all the time. On the Eastern front, the Russian army committed rapes. And in pogroms against the Jews and so on, Tsarist troops also committed rapes. And there's rapes on the Italian front and so on as well. And then in the Greek, Turkish Civil War, and in Silesia, and in, and, and in Finland, and so on. This is a, an international question. And I suppose the, the point is that it's the other side always accuses it is seen as, there wasn't a specific, in The Hague in 1907, when they were beginning to draw up these rules about war, they didn't expressly outlaw rape, what they said, that armies should respect family honours and rights. I, th- I don't think it's until after the Second World War that rape is specifically included. But certainly from 1914 on, there's this consciousness that when war happens and there's invasions and so on, they're I out,
5: think, they're raped. I think
3: what's really important due to that is the context of what people are talking about and when, when, when rape is used as a sort of a weapon against the enemy for propaganda, this is about male honor and the honor of the nation. It's something different to yeah, sort of yeah, into the yeah. intimacy of these assaults that we're, that we're talking about, I suppose. The, the things why you come into this to understand, it. and there were ways of using, you know, not killing women was also partially more better than our enemy. And likewise the enemy does these horrific things, and the more horrific we can describe. That's not really about the women, and it's not really about the way in which that rape was being used to police women. These are di- so it's happening on multiple, multiple levels. I suppose from my point of view, what I'm what I'm most interested in is understanding this the the, the overall status of victims of abuse and rape during during the 20th century and, and in, in the context of revolutionary period, is it exceptional what happens there, or is it happening before and after? And one thing that's really interesting, that you're talking about, people were conscious of rape and they were conscious of it in, in this kind of warfare of morality that also goes on in war, you know, which enemy is worse. There's also another narrative bringing into the centre, and that's a feminist one. And so the, the first wave feminist, one of the things they're doing in the Irish citizens they're going into the courts, and they're A double sexual standard. They're beginning to question this idea that men's sexual passions are uncontrollable and they're not responsible for them, and women are responsible for them. And this kind of this double 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 standard is being questioned as early as the late as the late nineteenth century in 1910. So, so these women are putting time in early to give vocabulary and an understanding for the dynamics of sexual violence within society. So, I think we have to be careful, you know, about what way, what context, in what context are these rapes discussed? And also, in what context are they experienced? So for, for a lot of, of, of the insider violence, for example, that's about isolating women from their community. But it's also about showing women that their belonging is contingent on their behavior. Yeah. And that behavior yeah. is almost always understood yeah. within terms of their body and what they do with it. And we can be, you know, perhaps about that in the sense of family honor is, can I be sure my children are the children that you're having? So there's that kind of really kind of visceral sense. But there's a broader sense. Irish start to mean, in the yeah. 20s. And a big part of that is an emphasis on a sense of Irish purity. You've got clean boys, and you've got pure girls. Yeah, so, so there's a kind of an simplicity sense. but there's a hell of a, a, a just an infrastructure that moves in behind that ideology and enforces it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, I, and and well, my point is, when I first came, to, I, as I say I didn't go to a yeah. but I looked at the reports in the 20s and I'm thinking, why are these people obsessed? They are obsessed in the 20s about sexual immorality. Yeah. Like, Kind of you know they're really being quite like, controlled mm-hmm. and then I think mean, it coming from a period of violence before and we have to look at because contemporary 20s felt that generational discipline had broken mm-hmm. down and they felt that that, that a sexual discipline had broken down as well why do they feel that? Yeah. and I think we need to kind of look at the revolutionary period and so see that kind of a state is being formed after all too mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, but but certainly in the last of the war, a state is being formed, it's being inscribed so records are being created and, and that's that. going to
2: have a long term mm-hmm. yeah but it is it, where you're talking about the state archive, right, it, it, it is the state, it's state violence. So, you know, um, and just to say I, I, I agree with you, the problem is, you know, I suppose as scholars we have to provide evidence or we'd be laughed off the stage, you know, you will be very quickly doubted and, you know, it will be denied. So that's why I'm very careful to, to, to use an awful lot of evidence. But I, I wouldn't like to give the impression that there are a lot of sources or that the archives are open, they're not. I've had great difficulty getting access to basic documents, and I'm still working on it, I don't want to say too much, but really I do believe there are a lot more sources that haven't been released and haven't been made available, and we've got to keep pushing for that. Um, I think um, the um, today, just to use an analogy, the the um, Retention of Records Bill was discussed before uh, the Aeroptis, Committee, the proposal is to close abuse archives until 2094. I think we can't be complacent. And, you know, I would say the same with this area. I would hate to think that we would all go out tonight and say, oh, isn't that great? There's all that evidence. Tip of the iceberg, really, to get back to your point. Secondly, what I found most helpful is other historians who. who we've had this distinction between social history and political history. And in fact, I've been working on sexual violence for over 20 years, but from a different perspective, not within political history, or not even within um, history going back to the early 20th century. So there is a lot of work being done on this, but it hasn't really been picked up in political history. And now what you have is people who perhaps have been more concentrated in social history speaking back to the revolutionary literature. And what I've found is since I started doing this work and doing public talks is, Loads of historians who are working on the revolution—they're going through files. Andy Bielenberg gave me a, a, a source he found looking at the Manchester Regiment document somewhere in England, and there was a little journal entry, Ballincollig, 1922, a woman raped, had her hair shaved, which suggests work of Republicans. So little entries like that—you know, lots of so so there's there's more sources coming forward from the overall work that people are doing. And I think what's really healthy and useful is that. His, you know, somebody like me would be looking specifically for this issue in sources, but others now who are looking across history and they sorry. see a source like this, they will say, oh, "Okay, that's important. That's relevant." Whereas it might have been ignored in the past. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah exactly that. Yeah.
1: I see the truth in back
4: there Thank you very much. Uh, just a question about ethics, and and I suppose ethics—well, ethics might be the wrong word, but like we're talking about people who who may have suffered violence in the 1920s who have grandchildren living. And that issue about if you're identifying people and you say there are other things which were put into the public record, like the, the Bureau of Ministry of history, but the pensions things and other things you come across, because one of the things on my mind is I'm sure there's lots of hospital records, yes. but can you really go through hospital records looking for evidence of assault? Yes. And if you do, well, can you, but should you? <laughs> and and if you do that, what 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 is... So you have the people who may have, re- who may have been assaulted and they have descendants, or maybe the people who have been accused of assault who also have relatives, and maybe the people who are accused of assault were, like, were they accused, but was how, how, how well was that pursued? So how do you manage that from when, when the, the uh, people, and particularly you may have, say, clearly identifiable names like bigs which would be uncommon. How do you manage that about for descendants?
3: I, I made the decision, Journal, two of the readers were like, This was 1924, why are you her? Yeah. And my argument to that was this was just a private document, it only comes to the surface because she wants to keep it private. And, and I already felt <laughs> I, I have had conversations with her, and I don't know how she feels about what I wrote. So I, I, I did feel a burden of being as sensitive as I could to understanding how she understood or what I thought she like, was I, changed, I kind of changed the address mm-hmm. and I changed the name to in order to find to do that. And in my case was I do not need to name for this story to have residence. Now, I think there's a difference
4: when yeah, yeah. they're public. Yeah. But it does raise a larger
3: question about digitization, right? So we did have this conversation in another context. So when you've got a small little archive box, so I had to go through 4,356 letters that aren't catalogued to find her letter. So if somebody so in a sense it's going to be difficult for the people to pursue, and to make her public. Um, but if it's on a digitized you can search, word search, does that change the ethical you know, we are not really the history profession, certainly we're not having a robust conversation about that. And the other thing to finish it, is that this has current day implications because, in a sense, if you think about the um, mother and baby inquiry, you think about the maximum asylums, and this is living history. This led to a a whole system, if you like, that we're still trying to understand. But also, we're bringing the rape myths endure. The one thing that really struck me is how the same questions haunt women, the same narratives are expected of them, and there's the same tendency not to believe them. I've spoken about so many things in my historical career. This is the only time when people have said to me, I've never been asked that about various other sources, right? So so it's still is in a grave that we have not dealt with that now. And
4: I do think that history presents us with an opportunity to have that conversation and
3: maybe to help us frame it differently now, because we were all depressed by certain trials, right, recently in the media. But as historians, I just sat there and I was so depressed by the fact that the resonances were, for me certainly, at least 100 years old. I-
7: Um. Oh, yeah. yeah, thank you. It's a very interesting conversation, and, and well done on the research uh, uh, in the article, Linda. Um, I'm just, as you said there, I hope that we can further discuss this in the decade of centenaries. But according to the official website, the government website, that the decade of centenaries is from 201912 to 2022, and I don't know when that happened because originally it was 1913 to 1923. But I just read it from you. It says. Um, um, the Decade of Centenaries programme aims to commemorate each step that Ireland took between 1912 and 1922 in a tolerant, inclusive, respectful way. It would be an awful shame to leave out the Civil War in that period. And do you know anything about that?
2: I have my suspicions. Um, I think you mentioned there's a cooling off from commemoration. Occurring. No, well, I mean, I, I've, no, I've noticed myself involved. that, that, date. that, that <laughs> yeah. the date was 1922,
0: and yeah. I just yeah. presumed yeah. that it was, you know. Some sort of a, a typo. Now, if you think more deeply about it, it is very disturbing because it, it means that they're, you know, they going to talk about half of the Civil War? No, yeah, history, 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 history. But, but, you know, anyway, these, I mean...
3: Well, it is going to be challenging.
0: Yeah, it is going to be very challenging. What, what What is, what they're sensitive about in the Bureau witness statements is informers. That's, a lot of that is still redacted. That seems to be the, you know, they're, they're afraid to... To give the names of, of certain people there, because again the explanation is their families would still be, you know, uh, alive, might still live in the same district, and it shows you the, the, you know, the, the idea of informing is considered such a, you know, a, 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 a grave, yeah, socially unacceptable. But um, they're not that sensitive about other matters. No.
7: No. Just. Yeah, Thank you so much, um, and thanks to especially uh, Lindsey burn and. Um, Linda Connolly for their work on gender and and sexual violence, and I'm a lawyer and I'm struggling to understand how the um, network of, you know, carceral institutions that locked up women and children over the 20th century happened, and so that's why your work is so important. Um, You know, you talked about remembrance and how we remember and the importance of memory and rape myths, and all this kind of came together for me quite powerfully today when I heard people talking to the Oireachtas Committee about the shame that they felt from the abuse that they suffered. Sorry, not from the abuse that they suffered, from the way in which the the state treated people at the Redress Board and the Ryan Commission, and now the way in which the state is trying to lock up their records for 75 years. And I'm just really, my question is, what's changed? Because as far as I understand it, again, I'm not a historian, um, the uh, records of the military pensions Were subject to the national, the 30-year rule, as far as I understand this. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, And also, people who went and made claims to the Military Pensions Tribunal, is that the word? Um, Were given a copy of their testimony. Um, That didn't happen to people who went before the Redress Board or the Ryan Commission or the Mother and Babies Home Commission, as you probably know. Um, and people can't get access to their files, and as you know, they're going to be sealed until 2094. So I'm just wondering, given the sort of overcoming narrative that we're being told about um, around getting over our past and breaking through into a new equal um, post-repeal society, what's changed actually in terms of access to records, or have we actually gone backwards? Thank you. Um, I'll
2: be lot of huge questions in, in all of those there, um, so I'll just try and be succinct. I mean, I think it's one thing to open the archive, but then I think what we're seeing is when you open the archive, particularly where there's tra- traumatic histories involved, there's human rights dimensions, right? Um, so to get to your question, so I've been super careful to use sources that are public, and um, I think that's very important because you know, there's a, there's a bit of a rush around some of these topics, quite naturally, because the sources are amazing, but the ethics part, which you're alluding to, Lindsay, is, is very important to get right, and I think we have to be super careful about ethics, absolutely, and there is another dimension here, which is about intergenerational trauma and hurt, so I've worked collaboratively um, with families, for instance, in some of the cases, and I think that's a very good way you know, of, of kind of ensuring that you have an ethical uh, protocol um, you know, a lot of these cases were reported in the newspapers, so they're not, they're not private. On the other hand, I will, you know, somebody will come up to me maybe after this talk and say, should you really be talking about that? The family still live in that area, and all the rest. Um, so, so absolutely, there are ethical dimensions. But again, we can't cover up the past either. So, so, so there's a fine balance um, to be got there. So, I think the archive has been opened, but I wonder how much thought we've actually given to the implications of that. So, there's a real urgency, a real need to look at ethical protocols. Should families have access first? You know, I have spoken to families who, they want answers um, to, to aspects of their past that, that they haven't known about, that are sitting in archives, um, of which you have to ask for on a piecemeal um, basis. That's not right either, so they're huge questions. Um, thank you, Sinead, well, well done um, on your submission to the um, Oireachtas Committee today, Sinead Ring, at the back, my colleague. And um, again, I think, you know, I would, I would like to see I suppose, um, a more interdisciplinary conversation about archives beyond uh, not doing to be unfair to what we might call pure historians who go in, get the archive, write the book, and write wonderful books, which I'm very grateful for, but there is an, an interdisciplinary conversation to be had here, and what we don't want is, as a consequence of people like me bringing up these issues, then a kind of a swift reversal (laughs) to closing the archive um, down very quickly. So there are ways, I think, of testing the boundaries of the law within that. I know in one of the cases I've looked at, a senior council was consulted for instance so um so, so who has the right to know who has right to the archives i'd say ethically families should first and um, should they be involved in the decision around whether it should be opened or not or is everything open i i don't know the answers to all these questions but what i do know is that i think that the 30-year rule is perfectly um acceptable in most contexts but then if you talk about abuse and you know lindsay that would be your area as well these are very different Kinds of questions. So, if people are still alive—if we're not talking about dead people—you um, know—they they should be involved in the consultation. Of, have some say whether or not they want their records open or not. Uh, they should certainly, um, as was the case with the Bureau of Military History, get a copy of their statement. And I believe it was the unredacted version. Uh, there's so much stuff redacted um, in the archives. You know, we have a partial lens. And remember, this is the state archive. So. In some senses, we're talking about state violence about, yeah. in, in terms of the continuity. We're talking about Fine Gael, really, you know, the, you know, this is Fine Gael's history as well. And we're asking difficult questions about the establishment of our state. And then you come up to the commemoration probably run by a Fine Gael government to get back to the question about 1922, 1923. It's all political. You know, and how how we want to remember that period at the state level is very different from the kind of issues we're discussing here. So I, I think there are tons of questions We need another hedge school, basically, on those questions alone. Can I just come in on that and say that I
3: would have a concern over going on. I would have a concern that actually, um, I don't have a real concern about the role the state is playing in presenting a certain type of overtones at, at the same time closing the, time the yeah. And I certainly think in relation to modern art my PhD wouldn't be possible now. I don't think I could get access to the sources that I could get, and, and it was hard enough to be able to do my PhD at the time because I had to convince people it was history, what I was trying to look at. And so I think that there's something really really troubling about the way in which the power of the state is being used at the same time as a narrative is being put forward of openness and inclusion, and who was consulted in relation to the decisions to close these records. and if we go back to the heart of it in terms of who owns them, what well, we do collectively. But there's also certain interest groups, you know, people who gave their testimony and everything, you should have a really important say in that. But it's not just those testimonies, it's also Department of Education files and Department of Health files that were sequestered and used for these and haven't been returned, and that were always difficult to get. Trust me, the Department of Health used to, to wait days for it to come from very storage. So there's all these sort of obstacles, and I think if the result of openness and people Telling really difficult stories mm. in the 1990s and the 2000s at times when there wasn't language for that story, when it, they took huge risks, these people who came forward and talked about abuse. And if the legacy is that that's been closed down, I, I think that's a travesty. So I do think that, that, and I'm as a historian, really grateful for people in the legal profession and, and people who have an expertise in human rights mm. who have been doing so much, like Mabel Roark, mm. and various other people who have who've been doing so much to raise this because, in a sense, that's something that, that, that historians find quite difficult, but the ramifications for us all are huge. So I would have huge concerns. Yeah.
1: Now I'm just about the timer, guys. I want to have to wrap up here. Um, I have to say that I, I've been doing hedge schools for about 10 years now. This is the most interesting one by far. I mean, I, he I, says I, that just... to all. But I have to say it it it, it has been disturbing as well. Right? Yeah. Uh, I think we have discussed some of the the problems involved in this, but. One thing I'm sure of, uh, the right questions are now being asked, that's for sure. And if the right questions are are being asked, just go back to your point, uh, you might find the things that heretofore were were unseen, uh, and some of them may be staring us in in plain sight, that's the other thing. So I I would be quite optimistic, notwithstanding your concerns, Lindsay, because because that is an issue that we all need to fight on, you know, it's a political issue, and I I don't think we've heard the last of that one. Now, just to, just to remind you that if you haven't read Linda's excellent article in the latest issue, Una Twice. still has a few copies down there. I think it's a special price this evening only, uh, if you'd like one. Uh, this is uh, the last uh, Hedge School of the year, so I'd like to thank you all. I hope to see you at uh, next year's Hedge School, so thank you very much for coming along. Thank, thank you.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.